Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks coming to you this morning with WOL and Everything Cooperative. This morning, we're going to talk about worker cooperatives. Uh, worker cooperatives are is any business you can think about if it's owned by the employees, owned and controlled by the employees, then it can be a worker cooperative. Also, follow the principles of cooperatives and the values of cooperatives. And we have this morning Mr. Esteban Kelly on the line who's going to talk to us about the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives and different cooperatives that are being formed as we speak. Good morning, Esteban. Good morning, Vernon. Thanks for having me back on the show. Thank you for coming back and taking the time. It's raining here in Silver Springs, Maryland. Uh, How is it? Are you in Philly? I am in Philly. It's also raining. (laughs) Well, great. We'll get the plants and the flowers to grow with the rain and we hopefully we'll get other people to grow with knowledge about cooperatives, get their wealth to grow, both financial and social wealth. So tell us, uh, you've moved positions. You've got a new job, new career. No, I guess it's the same career. It's the same career. Okay. <laughs> what are you doing yeah, these days? So I, I, I just joined uh, the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops this past spring. Uh, we've shifted our model, so we now have a, a, we're headed up by co-executive directors. The woman who was our executive director for the first 10 years of the Federation, Melissa Hoover, has shifted over to just running our sister organization, the the nonprofit, um, the Democracy at Work Institute. We kind of spun that organization off, and I can tell you more about that probably in a little bit, but um, she was kind of holding it down for both organizations. She was the the ED for both groups and um, and decided to kind of focus on that one. And in that re- restructure and reorganization, we ended up keeping our membership director but bumping her up. So Amy Johnson is now my co-executive director, and then I, I was hired on to work collaboratively with Amy, which has been totally awesome. So the member organization, what is that, or the U.S. Federation, what do you all do? Well, so we are the membership organization for uh, worker co-ops in the United States and other democratic workplaces. Uh, we have a, a little over 160 uh, workplaces that are dues-paying members, and those range in size from some of them are small co-ops like Aorta, which we talked about last time I was on the show, which just has five members, and some of them have 250 members um, or even 1,000 members. So there's a pretty wide range of the workplaces themselves that are members, uh, and they all just um, support us in a lot of different ways, some of them by paying dues um, directly, some of them by additionally nominating people to serve on our board. We, we're, we are run by a board of directors uh, of about nine folks, and some of them even provide different kinds of uh, in-kind things like translation services or printing uh, of our newsletter or all the different kinds of things because our members are so 
talented and have such quality products and services in almost every industry. So that's um, that's a lot of, of what we do. We're there to advocate on their behalf, whether it's for public policy. Um, we also do a lot of interfacing and education with co-op developers and other professionals who are um, who are interested in supporting uh, and growing worker cooperatives in the United States. And, uh, and of course, we have strategic partnerships on the ground with uh, movement organizations, community development partners, and internationally even with uh, other worker co-op folks throughout the world, throughout the hemisphere, and the other co-op sectors here in the U.S. and through the um, International Cooperative Alliance. So you work about, about 180 hours a week? <laughs> between the two of us, um, not, oh, not quite, not quite. But um, uh, yeah, we are. You know, we are run by a small staff because that's how we operate. Um, we we were really built up over the last ten years on that model. Uh, we're happy that we even have some full time staff nowadays. We we just had when Melissa was the ED, she was part time for more than half the time that she was uh, our executive director. Um, so it, it is kind of a big deal that we, and, and a signal that we've arrived um, as a sector, that we're growing into maturity, um, that we are able to have the capacity uh, for some staff. It's still not quite enough, <laughs> but um, but it's, it's one of the reasons why uh, our board was excited to bring me on board um, to help kind of grow everything that we're doing from our operations, our vision, um, our capacity. Yeah. So I don't want to spend much time talking about Aorta, but that's the organization that you have to found, right? That's the worker cooperative you yeah. used to work at, and now you've moved on. Well, I, yeah, I'm still I'm still a worker owner with Aorta, so um, it's yeah I have kind of two hats on um, on any given day. Uh, with Aorta, I still am a worker owner and consultant, and we work with uh, worker co-ops on a fee-for-service basis, and we also help to support other social and economic justice projects and organizations with facilitation and consulting and planning and conflict resolution and um, those kinds of co-op skills mm-hmm. or capacity-building skills. So I, I still do that work. Um, Aorta is doing really well and, and actually growing. We're in the middle of a hiring process as we speak, <laughs> and, um, and we are members of uh, a lot of different local or regional co-op uh, federations and organizations, including the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops. Wow. Well, it does sound like when, when I break down everything you've just said to us that you do, you spend a lot of time working. So I assume you really enjoy your work. I want to ask you this question early on. Do you like what you do? I love what I do. I was actually just having this moment yesterday where I was like, I just want to take today and put it in the bottle. This is exactly, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. And I'm really pleased about that. It is it is a lot of work, but when, when your work is something not only that nourishes you and that you enjoy, but that helps to build a better world um, and is rewarding and, and helps to open up opportunities for other people to lead the kind of lives that they want, it's, it's really just a win-win. So in some ways, you really don't work. You just do what you enjoy doing. I just do what I do. I just organize. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, you don't even have to take a vacation. I got it. I got it. So <laughs> the the work, when you and Amy lit up work, uh-huh. what part of the work do you do and what part of the work does Amy do in the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives? Well, we do do a fair amount collaboratively. We are we are sort of co-owning the responsibilities of, of um, kind of directing the Federation. But um, 
because of her skills and her background and all her expertise um, with uh, with policy and advocacy and legis- legislative work, um, she is really holding down a lot of the, the public policy stuff that we do, whether that's at the state level. Um, for example, there's been some legislation in California that's been really important, and we're, we're really working to ensure that people can uh, incorporate as worker co-ops and to, to advocate for that law um, in the state, because currently you can only really incorporate as a consumer cooperative or, or as a credit union or a farmer co-op. Um, so she's working on those kinds of things, and also on the Hill. We were lobbying there uh, during Co-op Week uh, two months, I guess now. October. So back in back in May, um, we were up there lobbying on the, the Hike the Hill Day that was coordinated by the National Cooperative Business Association uh, and a bunch of their partners. So Amy really holds down a lot of that stuff, and of course um, is our main liaison to our members, um, running our member services. Um, and we both kind of handle a lot of the back-end operation stuff. I am more, and again, with that caveat that we're sharing a fair amount of the work together on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. um, I'm holding more of the strategic partnerships work um, and b- sort of business planning, capacity building, um, communications, um, those those kinds of things. So that's... Um, that's what I'm bringing to the to, to the federation, as well as uh, really building out some of our fundraising. We launched about a year ago a new, for the first time, a sustainer program. So, in addition to having members who who pay dues and are part of our federation, and and we're there to serve them and grow our movement, we also have an opportunity for individuals, anyone, um, anywhere in the world, actually, to become a sustainer, and they can just contribute small amounts of money on a monthly basis. They just sign up once and, uh, you know, it could be $10 a month, $25 a month. And uh, that goes towards supporting all of this work that happens, including the public education uh, work of, of growing this movement. So that's a big part of what I'm uh, focusing on in the next, well, really for a lot of the rest of the year, uh, on top of all the other relationships that we have as we grow the, the movement. Okay, let me say this to you right quick. Um, I have four goals for the rest of my life. I'll be 68 this year, Esteban, in October. And, Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, and I've just figured out in the last four years what I want to do when I grow up. And what the, what, it, what I want to do when I grow up is uh, promote cooperatives, all kinds. I came out of the housing co-op world, but I love co-ops. Uh-huh. I want to promote co-ops. I want to develop some co-ops. At first, it was housing co-ops, and now it's like any kind that I can do. And uh, I'm turning my business with my employees into a worker cooperative, and we have somebody from Don working with us to do that. It is not easy. Uh-huh. Matter of fact, it's yeah. kind of difficult to get people, like like in a housing co-op, to get people to change their attitude from a tenant to an owner is getting the employees to change from an employee to an owner. That attitudinal change is the big piece. of going, And it just... I thought it was going to be three to six months. It's been a year already, and it may be another year, but we're doing a lot of training. And it's great conversation. We just had a a training yesterday on Finance 200. We had a training on Finance 101 a month ago, and they they wanted more. So um, he came back and gave them more. Uh, But the other one, the other two things that I want to do besides developing co-ops is to see about either starting or help to start schools that will teach co-ops or start a school just that will teach nothing but co-ops. And my fourth one 
and the reason I'm bringing this up now is because I think you're going to like what I've just added to it. I want to give money to ICA, International Cooperative Alliance, the Southern Federation of Cooperatives, mm -hmm. and I was able to give them some money this year. I, I was able to sell some, a building, and I was able to give them some money. It wasn't much, but they they appreciated it very, very much. Yeah. Uh, Cornelius Blanding told me that anytime somebody gives them money and it's undesignated, it, it doesn't have to have a certain program. He said that that that's like tenfold for them because they're always yeah. needing something to match. And so now I'm going to put, because of who I know you are, I'm going to put on my list a, a U.S. worker cooperative, and I need to know how I would go on to do this sustainer program. Whether yeah, you can just go to our website, which is usworker.coop, and it's, you know, .coop, it's just coop. <laughs> okay. Uh, and under, uh, under our membership tab right now, there's a place that says you can join as a sustainer. So there's a little drop-down thing. It's really easy. You can sign up online, just plug in a credit card. Uh, we can also figure out ways to do it um, by check or uh, other situations if you need. But the best way really is to sign up with a credit card at usworker.coop. It's pretty easy to do. We're also going to be looking forward this year to throwing some um, thank you parties for our sustainers. There's a couple conferences coming up that we're going to be at. We're having our annual meeting in Berkeley, California with the Western Worker Co-op Conference. And uh, so we're, we're starting to plan for uh, a little thank you party for our, some of our sustainers who are out in California. Uh, we're probably looking forward to having another series of thank you parties like that, uh, maybe in New York or Philadelphia and I think that we're having something uh, with our member gathering at the upcoming Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, in just a week or so. Well, I see that's Ju I'm on your on your website, and that's July the 11th at Clark University at Worcester, Massachusetts. Worcester, yeah. Which is okay, and I'm looking to go to that. I have it on my calendar. I haven't registered. Oh, great! Yet. I'll see you there. <laughs> okay. Um, and one of the ladies working for me and that's helping with this change. Um, Julia will be there also. So I will see you there on July 11th. And I, have to, I just saw about this one in California. I like uh, Berkeley. So it's September 21st. So tell me, do you have any sense of how many worker cooperatives there are? You said you have 160. Do you know how many there are in the U.S.? Yeah, well, we have we don't have the hardest data on this, but our estimate is that there's somewhere on the order of 400 worker co-ops. Um, that are established and up and running businesses in the United States. There are so many that are startups and under development. So that number does not include the startups. And the sector is growing tremendously quickly um, as, as a model that really um, offers dignified jobs and employment, fair wages, um, can really anchors wealth back into communities. It's something that's being picked up now by nonprofits or others that are doing community economic development. So rather than just pilot a entrepreneurship program for people to, you know, write up a business plan and, and open up their um, their business, their home cleaning business, their restaurant, their uh, whatever it is, their design firm, uh, people are really embracing the worker co-op model, right? It has all of the benefits of cooperatives that we're familiar with, and I know listeners to your show are familiar with, of shared risk. You know, you don't have to go out and get that loan on your own and just on the backs of you and your family, um, but you can pool all of that together, um, as well as all the the, um, the the time investment in um, in what it takes to start up a business. It it takes a lot, and when you band together with other people to do it, the chances for success are significantly amplified. So we're seeing a lot of groups that are that are starting um, worker co-ops and uh, and and really growing that number. 
right now we we have yeah just over 160 worker clubs that are active members in the federation and in addition to that we have associate members and some of those are other democratic workplaces that might not be actual worker co-ops um, we are starting to build relationships more with the with ESOPs, which are employee stock ownership programs. Um, that's those are programs where you a certain percentage of the shares of a business are are actually owned by the people who work there. Um, that's, that's about, we're going to have to take a break. Um, so I want to come back and talk about the difference between a co-op and an ESOP. But if anybody out there has a question of Esteban or myself or a statement, you can call in at one eight hundred. Four five zero seven eight seven six. That's one eight hundred four five zero seven eight seven six. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks with Everything Cooperative. This beautiful rainy day, and uh, we're in Silver Springs, Maryland, is where the station is, but the Washington D.C. metropolitan area. You know, the mission of National Cooperative Bank is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, placing special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. And unfortunately, most communities that I know that are economically challenged in the U.S. are communities of color, uh, folks that are African-Americans or Native Americans or Latino Americans of some sort, some people of color. So Esteban Kelly is our guest today. He's working with the U.S. Federation of Cooperatives and also a cooperative he helped to form. Esteban, uh, I heard the other day that there are 40% of the new co-ops are people of color. Is that kind of like what you know, or is that somebody just making a statement that's not true? <laughs> no, we are seeing uh, some, the largest area of growth within the worker co-op sector is uh, among communities of color. Um, there's a lot of interest from Latino communities, both from immigrant communities and undocumented workers, um, but also folks who do have legal status in the United States. There's a lot of growth that's happening in places where back in the, the, the sort of last big wave of worker co-op development in the 1970s and very early 80s, there was there was a lot of growth in, in concentrated in certain areas in the worker co-op sector, and now we're seeing this expand to new areas that weren't part of that initial wave, especially in places like Brooklyn, Queens, San Jose, the Bay Area, California. So, in addition to those geographic that geographic diversity of where we're seeing worker co-ops expand and build, um, we we are seeing this demographic shift where the both the, the kinds of businesses and industries that people are involved in and the worker owners themselves, um, it's, it's changing. We're seeing a lot of uh, startups with, uh, from women of color who are really taking their own skills and interests, whether it's catering or child care or elderly home care, um, and growing that. Um, that said, I, I think it's important to, to acknowledge that a lot of the largest worker co-ops in the U.S. Um, have been really owned and run by people of color, including women of color in the healthcare care uh, sector. The largest worker co-op, uh, Cooperative Home Care Associates up in the Bronx. That's, is, that's Cooperative uh, Home Care? Yes, Cooperative Home Care Associates, and they have um, over 2,000 worker owners, and it's mostly women of color uh, who are have been able to really build and expand their business and and um, and professionalize it and and really add a lot of um, technical uh, expertise to what they're doing. 
And yeah, right now it it, it is by by far the largest worker co-op in the U.S. And what do they do? They do elderly home care. Um, and uh, they spun off um, another uh, healthcare co-op in uh, Philadelphia, which is just called Home Care Associates. <laughs> it's a very similar name, uh, and they have about 250 or so uh, worker owners, and um, and they do the same work. They they provide care for elderly elderly folks, um, especially folks who can't leave their homes. And um, they're quite successful. In fact, their offices are about two blocks from where I'm calling you right here in Center City, <laughs> Philadelphia. <laughs> well, you know, what's so interesting is if you look at the baby boomers, which I happen to be one, uh, there are a lot and a lot of more and more need for that. The, the, the market grows uh, and it's going to continually to grow here, but the need for elderly to have care and more and more elderly like myself are considered active and we want to stay in our homes as long as we can. Don't want to go to a nursing home or go, I guess, a hospice is the last step um, in that progression. But getting pe- getting getting good care is, I know when I did this with my mom, that was the number one issue. And sometimes we got good care and sometimes we didn't, and then we'd have to move her. But if we had to had an, a, a co-op, and this is one of the benefits of co-ops, the values of co-ops, uh, mm-hmm. the cooperatives are based on values of self-help, self-responsibility, democracy, equality, equity, and solidarity. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a tradition of their founders, cooperative members believe in the ethical values of honesty, openness, that transparency, social responsibility, and caring for others. Uh, caring for others is right what they are doing in their job. So uh, have yeah. you had any sense from them on what their response is in terms of what family members think about their service? That's an interesting question. I think, see, these are the kinds of questions that Amy is much more equipped to respond to. Mm -hmm. She actually took to the road last year and did a kind of road show, went on tour and visited our uh, member workplaces all around the U.S. She, uh, when she was on the East Coast, she kind of started up in New England and drove down and visited worker co-ops from rural areas all the way through New York City, Philadelphia, down in North Carolina, and uh, she really got to hear a lot of those testimonies and stories. Um, so some of those stories are things that we're starting to, to share and rebroadcast out through our newsletter and through uh, webinars and information about uh, really the, the cooperative, the, the values and advantages um, of, of worker co-ops. So, yeah, I think some of those, those on-the-ground stories with some of those particular workplaces are things that my colleague would be able to speak better to. I have, in my own, even though I'm, I'm, I've only been around for a couple months um, on staff with the Federation, I have had the opportunity to visit a fair number of our workplaces, um, both in my own travels um, and in visiting some of these different hotspots for worker co-ops and attending all of our conferences in the different regions and, and our national conferences, which we hold every other year, but also just as a consultant with AORTA that so many of our clients are worker co-ops um, or are support organizations for worker co-ops. So I've been able to see some of the work with the landscaping co-ops that are getting off the ground um, and some of the um, the childcare co-ops and the home cleaning co-ops um, that, are, that are new and that are working with the kind of communities that we've been talking about. Well, if I had to guess, based on the few that I have visited or seen or know about and then extrapolate from the housing co-ops, when they work, they provide excellent service, uh, cooperatives do. And I, I would wager 
that if we did a survey of the customers of the cooperative home care, mm-hmm. that they would, you know, if it was one to 10, I wouldn't be surprised if it's 9.8 or 9.9 in terms of the service that they give, which is one of the reasons they can grow to 2,000 members. And these members are the workers, and they are also the owners, and they control the business. So a worker cooperative exactly. has to have ownership and control. And that's what I found out about ESOPs, which you mentioned earlier, uh, is that they may be owners, but they may not have control. Exactly. That's a huge difference. Okay, buddy. Um, I almost want to, this new knowledge, like I said, I know what I want to be when I grow up, is <laughs> to be able to have a job working with you, doing going out helping people to start co-ops. And we had a, a, a lady on the program either last week or week before, Diane McCoy from Baltimore, and she is she wanted to know, she challenged me and said, are you just talk or are you really serious about this? <laughs> I said, we want to do it. So we're meeting with her and next Thursday with a pastor that wants to start a work, uh, a housing co-op and somebody else from the community that wants to start a food co-op. And mm-hmm. so I'm wanting to bring people like you when it's, when or other people I meet, like the food co-op, I told them that National Co-op Bank had put together some money, seed money to help start these. So uh, the people from the Food mm-hmm. Co-op Federation to bring them either just by contact or bring them to the meeting with us so that we can help. And I told them, I'm just wanting to be a catalyst. I want to put people together so we can get more co-op formed where people can have control over their own destiny and create both financial and social wealth, which are some of the benefits yeah. and the reason I love co-ops. Yeah, and it's it's interesting you mentioned um, some of the interest in and some people who are taking those first steps to get organized, you know, that everyone that you have, you have your vision, you're sold on the idea of co-ops and it's like, what's it going to take to take that to the next step today? We're having a webinar, the, uh, our sister organization, the democracy at work Institute. Um, we have a, a free webinar the first Thursday of every month that people can just click and register. And we kind of walk you through those initial steps because it can be, really overwhelming and intimidating, right, to take on um, starting up a, any business, but then to add the layer of co-ops that have their own laws and statutes and benefits and constraints and opportunities. So we just kind of walk you through the process of what are the questions you need to start asking and answering in community with your people who you're hoping to start your co-op business with. That's going to be today at 3 p.m. Eastern, and you can find information at um, Democracy at Work. Um, the Democracy at Work Institute has information on, on their website about that. And I think that um, for your radio show, we have the link that we can either tweet out or people can call in if they have questions about that. Okay. At 3 o'clock today, if I not don't have a meeting, then I will be on that webinar. <laughs> because it's, it's, just, it's, it's fascinating to start one of these. Now, I started my business 22 years ago, so I know what it's like to do it on your own, and it is hard. Yeah. And one yeah. of the, as, as time has gone by, one of the things that makes it difficult is you have nobody else to help you make these decisions. So if you can get people to work together and understand how to cooperatively make decisions, make choices, then the, the business can flourish and be successful. And I think that's also why I, I read, and you can tell me if this is true or not, that Co-ops don't, uh, worker co-ops don't fail as often as other co-ops. If, if you start a business today on your own, I think it's like, uh, what is it, 75, 80% of them will fail in the first five years? Yeah. So what is it like with co-ops, worker co-ops? 
Um, it's significantly better with all kinds of co-ops. I think that uh, with worker co-ops, we're not quite at scale to be able to compare it to businesses nationwide in that kind of way. Okay, we'll be right back um, and figure out. I'm sorry, I forgot yeah. to tell you. We've got to take another break to sure. get the news and the weather. So we'll be right back to talk about the success rate of co-ops. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks with Everything Cooperative. We're talking this morning with Esteban Kelly from the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Everything Cooperative talks about the benefits of co-ops. Hopefully, you'll take this information. WOL's motto is information is power. You take this information, put some energy with it, some action, and have power. Uh, at Greenbelt Homes, which is a 1600-unit 1600 1600-unit co-op in Greenbelt, Maryland, has a plaque on their wall that says, Co-ops gives people the tools to control their own destiny. I like that motto because the tools is education, it's knowledge, it's information. You get this knowledge, information, you put it to work, and this is why National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program to give you information. So if you have an idea, a thought about a business, you can get with two or three, four or five people, come to these programs that Esteban is telling us about or get on the webinars and learn how to put work together so you can start your own business, end up making money, a good salary. Uh, Esteban call it dignified jobs. I like that term. Welcome back, Esteban. We were we were talking about, before we left, the success rates of worker co-ops compared to every day just starting a business on your own. Right. And what I was starting to say is that rather than, usually the kinds of metrics that we use is rather than comparing worker cooperatives overall, which have such various size and scale and in industry, um, we tend to tack particular worker co-ops with their industry peers. So we'll compare a laundry co-op with another laundry co-op or a taxi co-op, sorry, a laundry co-op with a, with a traditional laundry business um, or a taxi co-op with um, other taxi businesses or even Uber or Lyft. So we, we really try to compare um, startups with startups and, um, and ex establish an existing businesses and their impact and scale um, with the cooperative ones. Someday I'm excited about worker co-ops being big enough that we really can say, okay, overall as an average, here's how we're doing and here's how worker co-ops measure up. But right now the kind of data that we have is, is much more, at, it's at a higher level. Uh, we can say that uh, worker co-ops are more successful hands down than startup businesses um, that aren't cooperatively owned or, or managed. And we're still excited about, um, about really building out the cooperative development skills that complement all of the regular business startup skills and technical things that people need to know to get businesses off the ground. So really figuring out this democracy piece, you know, what is everyday democracy? How do you manage things democratically if that's the way you're structured? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there, there are worker co-ops that don't manage things in a really collaborative way, and that's also fine, you know. But ultimately, the ownership and the control when it, at the end of the day is in the hands of all the workers, even if the day-to-day -day management um, is a little more top-down or, uh, or, or delegated. So figuring out a lot of those skills is why we have so much programming that goes into the education programming and conferences and webinars um, that go into this ongoing education because whether it's for startups or existing businesses we're talking about everyday people most of whom have not had a track record of employment where they've been empowered democratically to co-manage things 
um, or to receive feedback in a way that's uh, that's open or vulnerable or or where they have to be expected to to really understand the financials in order to give input about them. Most times you're just sort of told, here's what your job is. You have to do this one task and it's up to someone else to make these decisions on your behalf or not on your behalf, on, on the, out of their own self-interest as mm-hmm. investors. So, um, so it really is a whole other set of skills to think through, you know, meeting process. How do we even meet together collaboratively or financial literacy or conflict resolution? Some of those basic things. And the first thing that came up when we, we were looking at this from the employees, from the workers, was trust. This mm-hmm. word trust, and we spent a lot of time uh, talking about that and training about that and figuring out how do you create trust. And the second was finance. <laughs> so, um, mm. yeah, that's that's that those have been the two huge issues as we've walked through this thing of trying to figure out how we democratically make decisions together. And the first task we took on was painting the offices. And that was <laughs> that was a fun task to get everybody's input in a way that wasn't derailed. Or, uh, and it, we got it done and everybody feels good about it and everybody had input. And it, just, it, it came out much better than if I had done it uh, or mm. I think any, any other one person had done it. So uh, it, 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 has its, it has its great benefits, and I'm looking forward to it. So can we change a little bit to talk about, you mentioned you have 160 out of potentially 400 worker co-ops that belongs to the U.S. Federation, and you mentioned growth. What are some of the organizations that you see are now that are, are starting up? What kinds of businesses? Well, so what's interesting is that just since um, since the 21st century, we've had over 150 new worker co-ops. These are formed. These are so that's part of that number of the 400 or so that we that we estimate worker co-ops um, in the United States. Um, so that's a tremendous amount of growth when you consider 150 out of the 400 worker co-ops have started just in the last 15 years. A lot of that growth is happening, like I mentioned, in places like. New York, New England, California, Austin, Texas, and there's a lot of startups that are underway in the U.S. Southeast, so where traditionally there's been a lot of producer co-ops. I know you mentioned the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, uh, which has a long and powerful history really lifting up uh, African-American communities through cooperative uh, models and structures and benefits, um, including through civil and economic rights, campaigns for civil and economic rights in the Southeast U.S. Um, so now we're seeing a lot of that energy starting to, to shift um, to building up worker co-ops in places like Jackson, Mississippi, um, or in Western North Carolina. So it, it is really interesting seeing how when we start to map out all of the problems and all the questions people have about how do we help meet people's needs, create employment that's not extractive and that can really serve people, uh, p- people's needs and where, as we were starting to say earlier, the work that you're doing feels good and it's not onerous and draining, that a lot of those questions come back to this, this, um, this issue of ownership. If, if the businesses themselves are not there to, to profit somebody who invested their excess surplus wealth, but rather to benefit the people whose employment it is, then they're much more successful, they're much more long-lasting, and they're much more resilient uh, through risk and through hard times. You know, I, I don't mean to, to give the impression that just because worker co-ops are a great model, every business is going to be successful because you have great values and you believe in yourself. I mean, this is, this is we're talking about real dollars and, <laughs> and real, real business. 
right? Mm-hmm. Real work. So, so that's why we're, we're very serious about providing support and technical assistance, um, but also in demystifying what can feel really intimidating about running a business. Um, these are things that everyday people can do, and we're seeing people do it, people who don't have business degrees and don't need them, people who don't have a college education and don't necessarily need it if, if what they're trying to do is, um, is catering. <laughs> they don't need a college degree. Um, to do some basic bookkeeping. So um, it really is building out those community organizing skills to help people realize their own power and capacity to, you know, look at a profit and loss statement or come up with a basic marketing plan um, or to figure out what how they can add more value for their customers or, or, or customers or clients um, or for their, themselves as workers. I was just at a conference last week uh, in Somerset, Kentucky, on education, I belong to a group of trying to get more and more uh, high school students to go to college, junior college, technical college, four-year college in West where I'm from. And the uh, some of the what I learned there applies here because they talk about grit. Grit is sustainability determination as opposed to IQ is a is a better measure of success for somebody going to succeed at college. And they and they compared entrepreneurs to educators and students, and that that in entrepreneurs, it's, you don't have to you don't have to have all of this education. I have a master's in business. I use very little of that in my everyday business. You don't need a master's in business to run a barbershop, do catering, run a property management company. Most of the businesses out here, you don't need a degree. What you need to know, you have to have grit. That's determination. You need integrity. And you need to learn what you need to learn. And that's why I like that when I've gone to um, co-op meetings like the one that you're going to have uh, on the 11th, and then the, the other one is that people help each other. People pass information out in the hallways, presidents talking to presidents, secretaries, I mean, treasurers and secretaries to the cooperative. They, they help each other all the way. And you get the information you need to run the business just in time. Uh, and that's, mm. that's what's so fascinating. I call it just-in-time education. You don't need to go get a four-year degree and you learn all of this, learn all of this. You may use it sometime down the road and you may never use it. But you, whatever you need to do to run your business, that's what, that's what people like Esteban and U.S. Federation of Southern Cooperatives and the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. That's what they teach you. The National Association of Housing Cooperatives. All mm-hmm. of these organizations teach you what you need to do to run a business. All you have to do is have the integrity to do it. And it can be And I think successful. that's what's important about the just going back to the basics of the co-op principles, which I know you, you spend a lot of time um, discussing on your program, that having co-op education is essential because you have the power to be democratically run, and you have the the real material capital of, of member economic participation. So if you're giving people the power of the dollars and the power of the political decision-making, it's so important that there's orientation and ongoing education and training, right? Mm-hmm. So all of those co-op principles really layer into one another, and, and it's important that you're autonomous and independent. If you have the power to make decisions and control your business, well, it's important. It makes it makes sense that you're that there isn't someone else pulling the strings and saying you're accountable to this university or that government or this major corporation, but that you you can really be free to make your own decisions. So they all kind of weave into each other. And when you're making those decisions, having concern for community and thinking of the interest of the cooperative community and how we can lean into one another through the six co-op principle by supporting other cooperatives. 
So that can happen in a lot of different ways. And in addition to some of the other educational things that I was mentioning, there's a lot of free advice, support, technical assistance, even just templates for, for business plans that people share. And they say, look, we don't see you as competitors. We're all in this together. We're all doing worker-owned businesses. Even if you're in the same industry, we'll help you get up and up and running. And, you know, there's no reason to see ourselves as, as in direct competition to one another because there's so many traditionally owned investor-owned businesses out there. Uh, that's who the competition is. So we want to help one another survive. That can be by providing support and advice. It could be through investments and loans. It could be through just showing people the ropes of the different different challenges that they might be facing as they get their businesses up and running or as they look to expand them. It's amazing how well you did to put all of those principles together. But I want to break them down just a little bit because I like doing this every every time because if people are using these principles of volunteer and open membership, that's number one. Number two is democratic member control. Number three is members' economic participation. That's put money in. And when there is a surplus, we normally think of it as profit, when there's a surplus, they can get money back out in, in terms of dividends. And there's autonomy and independence. And that's critical. I've talked about that a lot on the show because in, you've mentioned in certain countries, the government may get in and say you you can, they'll have, they'll want control. And in some cases, the people that loan the money would want control. The fifth one is my favorite, education, training, and information. And you mentioned cooperation among cooperatives is number six, and you get a lot of that. Seven is concern for community. So those are the seven principles of the modern cooperative. And when people have integrity to those principles, then success is not guaranteed, but you have a much better chance of success if you're working uh, through those through those principles with the values of a, of a cooperative. You know, we're not going to take another break, so if anybody out there would like a question or a comment, please call in at 1-800-450-7876. There is no such thing as a stupid question. I've taught school for 12 years. I used to tell my students the only stupid question is the one you already know the answer to. So if you have any question out there you don't know the answer, please call in and, and ask. And Esteban, can you give us some examples of either co-ops that are starting now worker cooperatives or ones that you've worked on in the past to help get started? Yeah, there's <laughs> there's a lot going on. I think one, one thing that's interesting and, and part of what we can attribute that growth to that I was speaking about with uh, 150 new worker co-ops that, that have been um, started in the last 15 years is this strategy around incubating worker co-ops. So there are several nonprofit organizations or projects of, of, of larger institutions that exist as, as kind of a business incubation, and they're really focusing on worker co-op business model for a lot of different reasons. So we see this with the support that the Sustainable Economies Law Center um, out in the Bay Area is doing, uh, along with Prospero, which used to be called WAGES, which was an acronym for Women's Action to Gain Economic uh, sustainability. <laughs> uh, and uh, and the, the Brooklyn Center for Family Life in Sunset Park, Make the Road, which is an organization that works with immigrant communities uh, and communities of color and LGBTQ communities up in Queens, even organizations like the Working World that primarily support groups through capital, right? They're a lender, um, but they provide a lot of support and incubation for uh, worker co-ops like New Era Windows in Chicago, which um, famously 
took over uh, the the a window factory that was shut down by the investors who decided it was no longer profitable. They withheld wages. They locked the workers out of the factory, right? And so we had Barack Obama showing up um, to support the workers um, who now have an up and running worker co-op in Chicago. And a he, lot of he really showed up as a senator or as president. Oh, this was during the campaign. This was during his presidential campaign. I think it was right before he was elected. Okay. I might be getting the details. Okay, um, eight or nine years ago. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, or it might have been right after he was elected. Either way, it was it was right around, it was it was mm-hmm. early Obama, and um, and yeah. So it, it is interesting to see the the kind of diversity um, of of sectors um, that people are doing this work in. Here in Philadelphia, we have the Alliance Taxi Co-op. That is a startup that's um, that's really getting moving. Um, they had a lot of bureaucracy to work through to get the permits to get the taxi medallions, and we're really looking looking forward to them sort of uh, opening up uh, in the coming weeks and months, um, and really building off of the successes of of taxi co-ops like Union Cab in Madison, Wisconsin, and a lot of the work that's happened there. In addition to the, the these these co-op incubators, well, actually, I should back up and explain how the, the incubators work. Okay. Um, so they they have a lot of they have a couple different strategies. Folks will come to them with uh, with a, an organized community, an idea of what kind of business they want to start, and that gets vetted. Um, they then sign up for uh, a training, a, a pretty intense training program, right? So this is what's helpful about the nonprofit structure that they have is they use that that education and training. Uh, capacity to support uh, would-be entrepreneurs uh, in learning some of the business skills, but also doing market studies and planning and uh, and building up some of these co-op skills. So they, they run these academies and they graduate cohorts, like uh, they, they do this also, Green Worker Co-ops um, up in the Bronx does this as well. They'll graduate cohorts of uh, startup worker co-op uh, members. And then they sort of continue to provide some of the back office services for a certain amount of time. So with uh, Wages, which is now Prospera, or with the Brooklyn Center for Family Life, um, they'll have people who are running their payroll and doing their bookkeeping at the same time that they're training the worker owners to do it themselves. So it's kind of like if you're uh, a baby bird and you are just learning how to fly, you still have the shelter of your parents in the nest. And uh, you can go and, and kind of fall out of the nest and, and climb back up and figure it out yourself. But at some point, you're on your own. So that's the that's the model that has been gaining a lot of traction. Having that extra layer of support helps to push people through those initial rocky years where it might just be that some uh, weak bookkeeping could make uh, or stronger bookkeeping could make the difference between a business that goes under or a business that succeeds. You can do the financial projections about oh we need to get these kind of clients or oh um, we can afford to hire this many more people um, and that is really what's going to make the difference for our business to grow and succeed. The other thing that's been really interesting now is this, the legislation that's been happening through public policy where cities are starting to support worker cop development with real capital. So New York City is now entering its second year uh, of funding. They got a uh, million dollars through city council to support specifically worker co-op development. They just re-upped that funding a couple weeks ago. And in fact, I think, or it was just announced a week ago, they got a little bit extra money, a little more than a million dollars this time. Uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, they got a commitment of $5 million, which is being parsed out as a million dollars per year. Uh, and what was interesting about what they did in Madison is that they built in a ramp-up year 
where they, they're doing a lot of research um, about how they how best to use the money most efficient, efficiently rather than just having all the money hit and people scrambling and using it right away. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, um, in Madison, we actually had our board president for the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops, Rebecca Kimball, uh, elected to city council to kind of help in that process and overseeing it, making sure that it was used, that that money uh, will be used appropriately and is actually going toward real projects, real worker co-ops, because um, she understands them. She's been working at Union Cab for um, for 15 plus years now at this point and, uh, and has also been representing the U.S. worker co-op movement internationally with our partners in Latin America and up in Canada. Yeah, I just heard about a work um taxi cab co-op in Silver Springs, Maryland, Montgomery County that's starting up um, and they're getting help. So um, taxis seem to be becoming up a lot. I, at least I hear mm-hmm. about them. But speaking of the groups coming together as incubators, this it reminds me of the Evergreen Cooperatives in Cleveland, Ohio. They have a laundry, have three businesses, a laundry uh, energy company that does like solar panels and other ways of getting a lower cost mm-hmm. energy. And then they also have a growers cooperative. They grow foods and their partners, strategic partners are the universities, corporations, universities and hospitals. That's that's mm-hmm. are their are their partners. So Yeah, there's there's a, a lot of, of energy that's happening around right they're taking this idea of the triple bottom line and, and even expanding it. How can we build up the the kind of industries that we need to be to live sustainably, to have sustainable communities that where we're not continuing to pollute the atmosphere, uh, our water, our own backyards. So um, a lot of the solar installation has been has been huge because there's an opportunity there. There's a market opportunity to really grow into that, and a lot of food-related businesses. Um, some some of my own co-op experience and and experience with. Democratic workplaces was um, through working at Mariposa Food Co-op in West Philly for about eight years. And um, we are now one of the largest um, democratic workplaces within a food industry in the Mid-Atlantic. We have uh, over 50 worker owners. I say we because I'm still a member as a consumer. Um, And I I was a former board member. Um, But being able to see how people can can build out those two pieces of how do you run a store that you know might be making three four million dollars a year in sales and still manage it in a way that lives out your values so at at mariposa we were able to continue to do the education and training and our own political analysis um building around food justice and food sovereignty and use that uh, to incorporate in how we run our business and how we do our own goal setting and plans. You know, what's the impact that we want to have for our community and in our neighborhood, as well as for the workers themselves uh, and for our, our members. So that that's some of the experience that I bring is, is even just with that angle of doing this with grocery and food, but certainly a lot of worker cup development is happening with the entire food chain. I, I had my compost picked up by a it was something that was started up as a co-op where they just ride around on their bicycles and they give you a bucket and you, they come and scoop up your compost once a week and you just pay a fee for it. Well, Esteban, it's been great. We only have about 30 seconds left. I really appreciate what all you're doing for your community in Philly and, and the U.S. The time goes by very fast. I hope people out there got something from this and you can go to – what was your, your webpage again? usworker.coop usworker.coop to get information about yeah. starting co-ops and you can be on a w- webinar today at three o'clock yes and that is institute.usworker.coop 
that's it for today. Thank you very much, Esteban. It's a pleasure. And you only look like you're about 20, so I don't know how you've been doing all of this stuff. We'll be back next Thursday. Please work cooperatively and let's do the best we can for our environment. Have a great day. Thank you.